So, Will. Yes? You may not have noticed, but this week's movie contained some biblical imagery. I didn't pick up on any of that. They kept it really subtle, very hard to pick up on. I think I was too busy being shocked by the one brother, like, smashing the other brother's head in with a hard object and then running away. Mm. I think they said something about him being in the wilderness after that. Yeah, especially with that mark on his forehead that was given to him by him. Yeah. And, like, I was really focused on that, and then later on I was, you know, pretty distracted by, like, a sudden flood. Yeah, the sudden flood. Spoiler alert, they ate the son of him, so couldn't couldn't tell you what that means. Yeah, anyway, all right, so whatever. So you're saying yeah. there's some stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, what's your point? So I was curious, what other movies that are just blatant Bible fanfics are your favorites? Well, I mean, when you put it as blatant Bible fanfic, I start going towards, like, the pure flicks zone. <laughs> Which, I mean, Mark, we've got to do a, like, proper, like, I Christian know. movie on this I show. I know. We gotta. We should do, like, Fireproof. I don't know what that one is, but it sounds terrifying. A fire. It's about a firefighter. Ugh. I don't know if I can handle it. I haven't seen it, but it was, like, a big, you know, it was one of the, like, straight to DVD, because it was before there was a theatrical market for it, but it was, like, a big mm. seller in, like, 2007. That sounds so much worse than I could picture. <laughs> have you seen um, it? No, I have not. Did you listen to the Good Christian Fun episode about it? I'm assuming of that's I... how you found out about it. No, I was, a, it was enough of a thing that I was aware of it when it came out. Like, there were mm. displays at stores that had, like, fireproof. There was also, like there were for a lot of those movies, there was, like, a tie-in book that was not, unfortunately, a novelization in the spirit of, like, 70s sci-fi movies. It was, like, a book of marriage advice that was, like, the fire fireproof your marriage. How did I miss that? We should do this after you get married, and then we're both married, and we can fireproof our marriages together. Perfect. We'll see if the library has the book. You know, by the time this episode comes out, I think you will be married. Yeah, indeed I am, listeners. Okay. All right, so we're pretty blocked off. So 2023, we're getting fireproofed. <laughs> oh, God. I'm dreading every second until then. It'll be a good time. Um, anyway, you were basically asking about, about biblical allegory in film. And of course, you know, the one that touches my heart most importantly is uh, the virgin birth of Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> uh, I, uh, of course. The midichlorians descended on this woman and impregnated her, but it also may have been Palpatine that did it. Isn't that one of the theories? So, episode three, in that scene in the opera house, Palpatine tells Anakin that Darth Plagueis the Wise could manipulate the midichlorians to create life, and then he gives Anakin a knowing look. As far as I know, in current canon, that is all that has been established there. But wouldn't that then mean that Anakin is the Antichrist? Uh, perhaps. The virgin birth under the influence of a great evil? It could be. There was a Darth Plagueis novel that is now out of canon since the big overhaul in 2014. And I think in that one it does, again, imply but not confirm that Darth Plagueis is responsible for creating Anakin. Hmm. So I guess that's less like virgin birth than like some kind of like non-consensual surrogacy situation. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's still very biblical, let's be real. Uh, that's not my real answer. I love E.T. E.T. is my favorite Jesus in movies. <laughs> yes, it's a very good one. E.T. comes down from heaven, dies for us, is resurrected by love, and then goes back to the heavens. It's 
it's just a good story, I guess, because mine is also a Jesus allegory because my first thought was The Matrix. I, I thought of that too. A great answer. What's great about The Matrix is that then in The Matrix Reloaded, they're like, actually, this is mostly nonsense. Yeah. They really do um, deconstruct their own deconstruction of the Bible. The whole architect sequence in that movie is just phenomenal. Now, I did also want to bring up, there's this series of videos that has a very similar level of extremely subtle nods to the Bible, as told to you by vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've heard of it, but there is this show called Veggie Tales, and surprisingly, it's about the Bible. You may not have noticed. But all Old Testament. Yes, it actually, it is all Old Testament. Because they had an explicit policy of not showing vegetable Jesus. Because that would imply that vegetables are capable of being redeemed through the salvation of Christ. Okay, do you know this is a real thing? Yeah, I did hear about this. They had a rule, and then the other rule that they had was, like, they would not confirm that vegetables, you know, these are made by people who would have used this language, they would not confirm that vegetables are saved. And that's why every episode of Veggie Tales ended with God made you special and he loves you very much. A nice thing to say to kids, but they don't say us. The vegetables get It the is not inclusive of, of the veggie of the vegetables. I feel bad for Bob the Tomato. If there were any romance in it, we would do Jonah a Veggie Tales movie. I remember that one because it's the asparagus. As I remember it, it is a movie well, it is a movie I saw many times. It had some pretty solid jokes. And it's also an interesting background story because it like bankrupted the studio. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like a disaster. I have seen it so many times. I've also seen the sing-along, the silly sing-along or whatever they call it, one million times. What's your favorite silly song with Larry? Um, I like the Pirates Who Don't Do Anything. Stars of Jonah. That and then uh, Where Is My Hairbrush are the two that I actually remember. I mean, I love Song of the Cebu and... It's not a silly song with Larry, it's a love song with Mr. Lunt, but the love song about cheeseburgers is, yes. of course, my jam. Yeah, that that screams Will Redmond. Isn't there one based off of a Chinese restaurant menu, too? Probably, but that might have been later than I was closely tracking. I think that was one of the like filler songs in between other songs in the Jukebox episode, where it's just silly songs with Larry. Okay, yeah, I don't know that one super well. It is funny that that was probably the one they showed most often in my youth group because it's the one that's just like not about the Bible, but it's the one that kids love the most. So it yeah, keeps them time. quiet. Do you think uh, Darren Aronofsky has seen Silly Songs with Larry? I think so. No. How old is he? He is 53 and Jewish. I Yes. Okay. If he's 53, Everyone I know that is our age, including Jewish people, has sub-exposure to Silly Songs with Larry, I would say. Yes, but he again is 53. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really think about how old he was, so I'm gonna go with no. Okay, felt worth asking. Yes. But you know who has definitely seen VeggieTales is Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, I would say that for sure. I I need Jennifer Lawrence's top Silly Songs with Larry because I believe that list could be created. She grew up in Kentucky. Yes. She has that. She has that locked and loaded. But speaking of Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence, I think we should dive in because I have a feeling we will have a lot to say about this movie. Should they have called the Carrie musical Silly Songs with Carrie? Absolutely. I don't know how silly the songs were, but I can also guarantee the songs could have been sillier. Yeah. Speaking of, have you watched the trailer for the Weird Al movie? (laughs) 
No, I haven't yet. You're aware of the Weird Al movie starring Daniel Radcliffe? Starring Daniel Radcliffe. That is a Roku exclusive. That part I did not know. (laughs) It is a Roku production. It will appear on the Roku channel. We live in the darkest timeline. Hey, look, they need some other exclusive content besides all of the quibbies. They also, at one point, the only reason I've watched the Roku channel is because they were the only streaming platform with The Nanny. And they also only had two seasons of The Nanny. You need to watch the Weird Al trailer, and basically everybody should. Because it is clear that, more than anything, this movie is taking its cues from Walk Hard, in that it is Mm. a Weird Al biopic that appears to be all made up. I mean, that's how it should be done. Yes. There's a lot in the trailer about him dating Madonna. Yeah. I don't think you can do a Weird Al biopic that is factual. Look, it looks like a blast. (laughs) Okay, I'll watch that after we finish this episode. Which begins now! Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. What's that yellow drink she's drinking? I don't know. That's like the main thing I could not figure out. It's the main thing Darren Aronofsky refused to explain when he threw up his hands and announced that he was going to explain everything in the movie. (laughs) That is very funny. We'll talk about that. We also examine whether Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And is God and Mother Nature actually dateable? They bang and even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it is a weird parallel to the star-director relationship, which the director denies. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are continuing our spooky season coverage with a movie that was marketed much more spooky than it is. Darren Aronofsky's 2017 film, Mother. <gasps> That's how I'm vocalizing the exclamation point. Because okay. Mother is all lowercase. And there's an exclamation point, so you can't yell, so it's a gasp. So I will say, I think the anti-horror descriptions went too far where it was more horror than I expected. I mean, for the most part, it was just, like, spooky and dread. Like, there's a lot of dread rather than horror. Yeah, for a long time, it's not creepier than Gaslight. Well, I mean, Gaslight, also a horror movie for that time. Yes, but, you know, in the terms of what we're talking about. But the horror genre is very clearly influencing this movie. Certainly Rosemary's Baby. Yes, at the very least. But I would say, if you have not watched any of the marketing for this movie in a while, like any of the trailers or the TV spots, it is worth going back and looking at those, because those are very much selling a, like, here we go, it's a horror movie, opening two weeks after it. Ah. Yeah. I am surprised that it got an F on Cinema Score. Yes. I mean, that's the thing we have to talk about with this movie. It got an F Cinema Score. It's one of only, like, 20, maybe 25 movies to get this in 40 years. For those people who don't know, Cinema Score is a company that pulls people outside theaters on opening night, mostly in Los Angeles, and asks them to score a movie on an A to F grade based on how much it met their expectations. So it's not even a question of like, is it good or is it bad? It's a question of, did it meet your expectations? And Mother got an F, which almost never happens, but makes a lot of sense to me because these trailers, which I feel like I was seeing all the time in the summer and fall of 2017, really were selling like, this is going to be a horror movie. And you watch it, and like there are some horrific sequences, but it's mostly just weird. And I think when you add in the fact that like you know Jennifer Lawrence in it as a star brings certain expectations too, and I think none of those are met. Like This does not feel like any other Jennifer Lawrence movie. That is certainly true, which I liked. 
Yeah, I thought she was really good in it. Genuinely watching this movie, I was like, man, like, I know Red Sparrow is after this, and, like, Dark Phoenix barely counts. Like, feels like it's been a long time since we saw Jennifer Lawrence. And then I realized Don't Look Up came out less than a year ago, and I've just fully blocked it from my head. Yeah, that is a fair decision. Yeah, it feels great for me. The only Oscar movie of last year that I started and just said, I'm good. Life's too short to watch Don't Look Up. Life's too short. So I was looking... And I think one of the only other Darren Aronofsky movies I've seen is The Fountain, strangely enough. I mean, obviously, besides like Black Swan, which is probably his most Certainly his best known film. That's, you know, his Oscariest movie. And I mean, it's such an Oscar success. Natalie Portman wins Best Actress that like every Aronofsky movie since then gets a little bit of Oscar buzz. Noah, it fizzled out pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah. But Mother was a fall festival release. It was at Venice. It was at Toronto. And this year, he's putting out his first movie since Mother, which is doing the same track. Mm-hmm. So I think having only basically seen Black Swan, The Fountain, and Mother, I could very much see the line from The Fountain to Mother. And I don't know if I liked The Fountain, but I did like Mother. Okay, so what did you like about Mother? <gasps> I thought it was weird. It was simultaneously so easy to understand and incomprehensible, which I appreciated because it's hard to be both comprehensible and incomprehensible in the same movie. It's hard to be not even comprehensible, like ham-fisted. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It is hard to be ham-fisted and incomprehensible in the same movie. It manages to be weirdly mysterious while being, like, no subtext. Right. It's all text. It's It's all text. text, but I have questions. It's all text, and it's very easy to, like, grasp. And yet there's so many parts of it that are just weird. And I think as someone who I love hosting, but I don't necessarily love snooping. Oh, you're talking about hosting guests. Hosting guests. But I don't like snooping. And honestly, the horror of people invading your house and just touching your things without permission and after you tell them not to was like knives in the heart for me. (laughs) I mean, you could say this movie is about being uncomfortable with guests and you could make the full argument that that's its focus. Yeah, it really is also surface level. It works on a very surface level as well. Well, it's the thing about like, for as blunt as this movie is, it can support a surprising number of alternate interpretations. Yeah. And that's what I like about this movie. It's a movie that has absolutely no chill. The marketing for it had even less chill. Not just the the horror trailers. Like, I'm going to tell you about some other stuff where it was just, like, again, incredibly ham-fisted. That's the word I'm going to keep using. And what's funny is, like, I read a bunch of reviews from it, which I read at the time. Like, even though I didn't see this movie in theaters, it was such a point of discussion in the film community that... I had forgotten a lot of it, but even as I just, like, over a couple of days was, like, thinking about, oh, okay, I'm gonna watch Mother, I suddenly stopped at one point, I was like, oh, right, a sink is gonna break. And then, like, about an hour before I turned the movie on, I was like, right, they eat a baby in this movie. (laughs) Like, all this stuff that I just picked up from reading all of the Mother discourse. And it was funny going back and reading the reviews and seeing the harsh split of people who are like, this is so ham-fisted, I cannot get on board with it. And people being like, it's great, it's over-the-top nonsense. I can't remember. Did critics like this or was it super divisive? It has a 69 on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. That's Again, worse than I expected. It was like pretty split. There were people who reacted like 
aggressively against it. None more so than the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Okay. Which is exactly what it sounds like, an organization of women film journalists Mm -hmm. who nominated Aronofsky for its Hall of Shame that year. Why? They also nominated Jennifer Lawrence for Actress Most in Need of a New Agent. And this one I think is particularly stupid. Like, all allowed, Jennifer Lawrence maybe needed a new agent, but like, unrelated to this movie. The one that really annoyed me was they nominated Lawrence and Javier Bardem for Most Egregious Age Difference. And I'm like, that's text. That's part of the movie. It's not egregious. You can't complain about that if that is like a central address topic that makes sense within the frame of the movie because he is the eternal god and she is the limited temporal earth. So she has to be younger than him. Right. Like it is literally brought up in dialogue when Ed Harris is like, oh, I thought she was your daughter. But then also there's just the fact that like, Yeah, like, that age difference plays into the weird power dynamic between the two of them. Like, the movie is aware of that. And, like, even, like, at the end of the movie, after, like, the Earth is restored and, like, the wife is resurrected, she's, like, even younger. Like, the movie knows what's happening. Yeah, it's very aware of that. And it is an interesting thing for it to talk about. And I don't think that depicting an age gap is a bad thing. The only thing I think is weird about the age gap is the fact that Javier Bardem and Darren Aronofsky are the same age. Okay. I don't, did Lawrence and Aronofsky, like, I don't know what the story is there. Oh, yes. Like, shortly after production on this movie ended, Jennifer Lawrence and Darren Aronofsky started dating and dated for a little over a year. Ah. And so they were together at the time this movie was, like, going through festivals and stuff like that. And so to me, that is the weird thing where, like, you make this movie that is invested in this relationship between like artist and muse and you're talking about this age difference and then get into that relationship yeah and it's like it's hard to tell if he was aware of it or not because people kept bringing it up on the press tour because like they were together for a long time before we found out they were together it became public knowledge like in the summer of 2017 and then this movie was at festivals in september and journalists kept asking like so is there uh anything going on there darren he's like no i didn't really think of it Oh my goodness, that's bad. He always comes off, like, confused that this question has come up. That does make it worse, and he's clearly playing dumb. I don't know, he was so weird on that press tour. I mean, the festival reaction, which was very divided, might have played a role in this. But, like, at Venice and Toronto, he was being, like, very mysterious, like, oh, I'm not gonna tell you what the movie is about, like, just think about it for yourself. And by the time it was coming out in theaters, he was like, I'm going to spell the whole thing out to you. He did this interview with IndieWire where he walked through the whole thing, which I can read to you at some point on this if you want. Oh, my God. There's like the press tour like kept twisting back and forth between Darren Aronofsky refuses to explain his mysterious movie. And Darren Aronofsky wants to walk through every symbol except for the piss drink that J-Law is drinking. It's so weird that that's the only thing he doesn't address. And he, like, said in interviews, he's like, that's the thing I'm not going to tell you. That's so bizarre. This man is weird. She keeps drinking a glass of water that she's dropped powder in that turns it, like, dehydrated pee yellow. Yeah, and fizzy. That's true. It is caffeinated or carbonated. I just don't know why people would need a walkthrough in this movie. The only thing I feel like I needed explaining was the drink. It's not that mysterious. I mean, one thing is that, like, He then, in his 
discussions most of the time did not focus on the biblical stuff much at all, although he does a little in this wire interview. He mostly talked about how it was a, a climate allegory about humans destroying the earth. Yeah, I got that. It was <laughs> Oh, you picked apparent. up on that. <laughs> you picked up on that when they're ripping the house apart and she's like, why are you doing this? And the people say, to prove we were here. Yeah, I think I was able to piece that together. He sussed that one out. I'm so confused why there needed to be an explanation. And it's so funny that the only thing he wouldn't explain is the thing that I feel needs an explanation. The one thing that, like, hits the climate thing and the religion thing. At the premiere, they handed out these, like, cardboard things called Mother's Prayer. And I found a picture of it that I'll post on our social media. But it, again, is, like makes it very funny that there was discussion about, like, what does mother mean? Because here, here is the mother's prayer that they handed to every single person who was in the theater at the premiere. Our mother, who art underfoot, hallowed be thy names. Mark just slumped. Are people dumb? Thy seasons come, thy will be done, within us as around us. Thank you for our daily bread, our water, our air, and our lives and so much beauty. Lead us not into selfish craving and the destructions that are the hungers of the glutted, but deliver us from wanton consumption of thy vast but finite beauty. For thine is the only sphere of life we know, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am so confused at how anyone could be confused about this movie. It's all there on a literal piece of paper they gave people. Javier Bardem, at the end, quotes a pretty well-known quote from God. When uh, she asks him who he is, and he says, I am I. Yeah. You can't get more blatant. He's also the only, if you pay attention in the credits, he is the only character whose name is capitalized. He's listed as capital H, him, and everyone else is all in lowercase. Because God is capitalized. The explanation for why it's lowercase makes sense. The yeah, expl- that's the explanation. His explanation of the exclamation point is very funny to me. Mark, it the represents the spirit ends, of the film. The movie ends with an exclamation. <gasps> I, I'm obsessed with that, and I think more movies with dramatic climaxes need to include an exclamation point. I think more movies should have exclamation points in general. It just makes it fun. Like, his new movie is called The Whale. What if it was called The Whale? I mean... It's a missed opportunity. Now I'm just trying to think, like, what other big movies this fall should have exclamation points. Like, we could have The Fablemans. I think we could bring it into TV and call it The Rings of Power. Babylon. Oppenheimer. Barbie. I mean, Barbie maybe should have an exclamation point. Yeah, Barbie really could use an exclamation point. I think Killers of the Flower Moon, you put the exclamation point after Killers, like it's Panic at the Disco. (laughs) Well, the thing I can't wrap my mind around still. How were people confused what this movie about? I because don't know. I need, I need to walk through just his writing career alone. He writes a book that makes people like him. He doesn't write anything for a while. He then has a baby and writes another book that inspires a religion. And then the baby dies and is eaten. And I'm like, obviously the timeline of that doesn't really track with you know the bible being written after jesus died because it doesn't really make sense the other way around but it's still just so obvious yeah i mean i i do think there were people who didn't love how strange the movie got in its last portion when it's like sweeping through like 
the crimes of human history. I think there were people who didn't care for how violent it got at times. Certainly there were people who did not love the ripping apart and eating of a baby. Honestly, to me, like the more shocking thing was not the baby who is ripped apart off screen and then you just see people like popping props in their mouths. To me, it was like the bludgeoning of Jennifer Lawrence after that when she tries to stop them and they beat her up. Yeah, that was the that was the hardest part to watch for me. Yeah, that was intense. And so I think there were people who just like didn't love that. There was a lot of discussion of the violence of the movie at the time. But yeah, there like I mean to this day there are still a lot of like mother explained things floating around and like it's not complicated. And I more understand people who complain about it being obvious than people who complain about it being confusing. Right, because I I don't love violence in movies. I don't like watching it that much. But this movie it's very intentional. And I think that it's very thought out, and it is not violence for its own sake. The point of Jennifer Lawrence being beaten is it's like, we are destroying the earth, and we are, you know, punching and kicking it every day with our wars and our drilling for oil. Like, the symbolism of it justifies the gruesomeness of it, because it's making a point about how bad environmental destruction is. So, I get it. But I I do understand people saying there's too much violence, but still, I think this is a movie that kind of justifies its violence in a way that's kind of too ham-fisted for my liking at times, but I still overall enjoyed the movie. I think it's pretty great. Kristen Wiig shows up. Kristen Wiig shows up, and, like, genuinely, like, this is a movie that has no score, which we should talk about in a second, but, like, snippets of music, especially of musicals, kept popping into my head, and... Anytime Kristen Wiig was on screen, I was just hearing the blob from Merrily We Roll Along, where just, like, patter explaining, like, these are all the fancy people. I like when they have her do, like, her target lady voice to say, oh, you're here. Shoot her in the head, or whatever she says. Well, she's playing the Herald. Yes, she is playing the Herald. I like all the names. Having it on Amazon was kind of nice, because the x-ray did show all of the names for the different people. You could just get hit pause and get the herald, the zealot, the cupbearer. The fool, the philanderer, the adulterer. Try to think of some other ones. To be clear, nobody in this movie is named like Brad. Like Jennifer Lawrence, our star, is named Mother. Javier Bardem, her husband, is him. The next two biggest characters are Ed Harris as man and Michelle Pfeiffer as woman. And then after that, you have Domino Gleason as older brother and... Brian Gleason as younger brother. Let me tell you, I was not prepared to hear that accent come out of Donald Gleason's mouth, which is not to say it was bad. I just, it was incongruous. I was surprised to see him show up at all. And like, I've seen him in movies set in the United States. Like he's in True Grit, but there he's doing like a cowboy kind of accent. Yeah, when it's like an over-exaggerated accent, In general, it's easier to ignore, but when he has just a normal American accent, it was distracting. Again, not bad. No, it's not a bad accent. That was such a ridiculous moment. What, the whole Cain and Abel sequence? Yeah, the Cain and Abel sequence in particular just felt so much. Well, what you have to understand is man and woman had two sons. And uh, keep in mind, like, man showed up first, and he had this wound in his side. Don't worry about what that was. But man showed up, he had a wound in his side. The next day, a woman was there. At some point, they go off and have sex. The next time we see the woman, she's wearing this hideous bra with, like, lime green leaves on it. Oh my god, I hated that. And I she's, loved it. She's covering herself with leaves. It is a truly ugly bra. It's the only time in this movie Michelle Pfeiffer looks bad. I do want to shout out 
Michelle Pfeiffer killed it in this. She's obviously creepy, or at least a little bit unpleasant from the drop. But if she wanted to walk in and slap me in the face, I would not complain about it. She is doing some great work in this movie. She's incredible. She's always incredible. I feel like we keep having false starts to the Michelle Pfeiffer comeback. Like, people were thinking it might be this, and then this movie was, like, way too divisive and was never going to be an Oscar thing. And then, like, she's in Ant-Man 2, weirdly. And then she was in French Exit, but that movie didn't really take off and was also part of that, like, weird, like, COVID Oscars. Like, we need a proper Michelle Pfeiffer comeback. It feels like as soon as there's something that can really make it work, she'll get the nomination. She would have been in contention for me. Like, this would not really, I don't think, would have been in contention for Best Picture. But she'd be in my pot for Best Actress, or Best Supporting Actress of the Year. Because she was doing everything that needed to be done and more. I'm trying to pull up the list. Okay, so that's the year Alice and Janney wins for I, Tanya, Which is an Alice and Janney performance. I think Leslie Manville still honestly would have been my choice. Out of these five, it's Leslie Manville or Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird made me feel the most. If I have to cut one of these five, which again are Janney, Manville, Metcalf, Mary J. Blige, and Mudbound, which I have not seen, and Octavia Spencer in The Shape of Water, I cut Octavia Spencer in The Shape of Water, which is a perfectly nice performance, but has no business being here. No, I agree. I think it's it's not Octavia Spencer's fault. The role isn't big enough to justify a best supporting to me. And I'm not cranky about, like, a one-scene role that's, like... Like, Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea doesn't bother me. But Octavia Spencer is doing a solid job playing the friend. Yeah. And until we give Judy Greer an Oscar nomination, (laughs) I don't need to see anyone else nominated for playing the friend. Exactly. So I think I would have put... I can't think of other movies from that year, but I probably would have put Michelle Pfeiffer in over Octavia Spencer. Like, I'm sure I could think of someone else out there who could have like you know swapped in over both well my list is insane and shows what a dork i was in 27 i'm embarrassed by this list i should change it <laughs> so i gave the win to Lori metcalf for ladybird i had uh bria benight whatever her name is from the florida the mom from the florida project i had holly hunter for the big sick and then my crazy nominations are daphne keen for logan and samara weaving for three billboards who i just thought was really funny in that movie <laughs> that is absurd will i'm embarrassed by this five (laughs) (laughs) i feel like you always give yourself one where you're just like i'm just gonna do whatever i want yeah because it doesn't matter who cares these have no power i'm trying to see if i have anything else uh, similarly crazy in any supporting actress here um i nominated claire foy for first man that's pretty weird um she's good in that movie though now I'm just looking at these, and like now I'm just free associating on these. Did you see Joe Pesci is going to be in a Peacock show about Pete Davidson's life? No. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Joe Pesci, who has been in two movies this century and had not been on a movie set in like 15 years when he shot The Irishman, is coming back to Hollywood to be in a Peacock original series based on Pete Davidson's life. I hate that. Joe Pesci, give us more. I learned a new word the other day, which okay. is a forgot buster. Yes. And you know what's a real forgot buster? Three billboards outside Epic, Missouri. I mean, calling it a, a buster of any sort is generous. Like, it did fine, but... I Yeah, I guess cultural blockbuster, like, everyone was talking about it. There was so much discourse. 
I think part of it, like, you know, it did fine. It got a bunch of Oscars. Francis McDormand got an Oscar. Sam Rockwell got an Oscar. Martin McDonough hasn't made a movie since then. And he is back this year, and he's back where he belongs, which is making movies set in Ireland. I guess it's his first movie set in Ireland, but his, a lot of his plays are set in Ireland. And I love Martin McDonough as long as he's in Ireland, and I think he does not understand the United States and shouldn't try to. That applies to a lot of Europeans, including the people online who need to just take a breath. Yes, but especially if you're going to make a movie about police violence set in Missouri three years after Ferguson. Sometimes people make choices, and sometimes those choices should not have been made. Anyway, I'm excited for the Banshees of Inishirin. It's McDonough, he's in Ireland, it's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson back together. I think it's going to be good. So should we talk about the romance of Mother? I am not even close to being done talking about all the stuff I have to say about Mother. One thing we should say, I think you and I are pretty positive on this movie, and I've said it was pretty divisive. Martin Scorsese wrote a column in The Hollywood Reporter that I'm going to share on our Twitter page, and it's like he talks a little bit about how like cinema score is bad and Rotten Tomatoes is bad, but it's clear that the point of this column is Mother is good and people shouldn't rush to judgment on it. And I love that Scorsese was like so bothered by the collective response to this movie that he was like, I'm going to write a piece. He loves to be inspired by the cultural zeitgeist and write a piece. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's just, the thing. I mean, I love, I love Marty and I love how much he appreciates different kinds of movies. Like he would never make this movie. No, but I can see why he enjoyed it. Yeah. His film foundation has been obviously working for decades, restoring classic films and This spring, they started hosting once a month free digital screenings of films that they've restored. And I watched the first one, which was a Powell and Pressburger movie called I Know Where I'm Going. And his whole introduction was just so sweet where he's like, we're going to watch these movies. And this is a movie. It sure is. And, you know, it wasn't recognized by the Oscars at all. It was derided by the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. But there was one organization that chose to honor Mother. The MTV Movie Awards? <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> Nor did the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups Awards, which, surprise, we're not into this. Those are our two go-tos, I'd say. No. Uh, Mother got, or rather Aronofsky, got special recognition from the Oscats. What are those again? It's like the Oscars, but it has cat in the name instead of car. Oh, God. I did not know that was a thing. Well, the Oscats were created this year, 2017. I have not looked in to see if they ever came back, but we should find out if so, because then we should refer to them all the time. And they are PETA's movie awards. Yikes. (laughs) So, for example, they gave awards for best computer-generated imagery, which they gave to Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. And they, they have these nice descriptions for all of them. So, like, best original screenplay goes to The Last Jedi, which, to be clear, would not qualify as an original screenplay at the Oscars because it is based on an existing thing. They gave original screenplay to The Last Jedi because the writers, there's only one, of this epic story wove in messages of compassion for animals. Two characters set free fathiers used for racing, and Chewbacca chooses not to eat a porg after seeing a group of porgs weep over their dead companion. Oh my god. I found the 2021 Oscat Awards, if you would like some highlights. Okay, I will want that. They also gave Best Live Action Film to The Last Jedi, in which they aligned with AARP, which gave Best Movie for Grown Ups to The Last Jedi in their coolest move ever. 
Best Director at the Oscats went to Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water because the film encourages equal consideration and kindness for others without exploiting live animals. Guillermo's brilliant movie The Book of Life also includes pro-veg and anti-bullfighting messages, so we know he has a soft spot for animals. This will not be the last time that the Oscats shout out a director for a movie that did not come out in 2017. They gave Best Actor a tie to Andy Serkis for War for the Planet of the Apes, in which he plays a monkey. And Doug Jones for The Shape of Water, in which he plays a sea monster. So their best actors are dudes playing animals. The Pig's Choice Award went to Oakja. <laughs> of course. Best costume went to Ryan Gosling's shearling free coat in Blade Runner 2049. Quote, Ryan's entirely vegan jacket is as gorgeous as he is and shows the future of fashion is cruelty free. And finally, the Pita Pick, the last award, just the thing they picked at the Oscats is again a tie. One is Mother. The explanation? Because Darren Aronofsky, one of Hollywood's most talented directors, doesn't exploit live animals in his films. Even ones like Noah, which revolves around animals. We love Darren. So here's the thing. There are no animals in this movie. There are no animals in Mother. But they gave him the Oscat because he didn't use any live animals in Noah three years earlier. I hate PETA. The tie for the PETA pick was Lady Bird, which they styled as one word. And they gave three reasons. A, because Lady Bird, parentheses, duh. B, because we love star Saoirse Ronan, who spoke in favor of closing Irish fur farms. And C, Laurie Metcalf. We live so close to the headquarters. Should we egg them? (laughs) Should we egg them for a five-year-old? No, because it's continuing. Because I have some highlights from the 2021 Oscat Awards. Just a couple to hit. One that makes sense. Best costume design went to the Green Knight because they relied exclusively on vegan materials because the director and costume designer are both vegetarians. Feels like that, that movie could sense. get a shout out for its digital fox too. Yeah. Um, Close but no award went to Don't Look Up because they didn't specifically mention animal agriculture's negative impact on climate. Hilarious. And the opportunity to raise awareness that going vegan is the single most effective way to reduce one's impact on Earth is not mentioned. Wow, that is (laughs) the most tiresome PETA move I've ever heard. There's Honey is for Bees award for Sing 2 because one character one time says he doesn't like honey in his tea. Not even specifically about protecting bees he just doesn't drink honey in his tea these are quite stupid i know there's also a specific shout out to just someone drinking oat milk in a movie yeah uh i think we should pay attention to the oscats every year and perhaps (laughs) i should make them a wikipedia page (laughs) (laughs) will has a new project i've just been jonesing for one you know i feel silly like I spent all this time on Wikipedia, and now I just, like, pop in once a year to be like, all right, here's a new page. This is your new project, and it's much shorter, because there's only, like, four years, years, five years now. What I need to find is I need to find if anyone else has offered any coverage of this, because Wikipedia will insist that I have an external source. Yeah, good luck. I'm sure someone has made fun of it online. I'm sure, like, some press agent got a release in deadline at some point. Yeah. Except that they're so dumb is the problem. Like, the reasons are so dumb, they might not even talk about it. And PETA's not exactly an uncontroversial organization. Yeah. Um, speaking of controversy, 
Mother opened wide on September 15th, 2017. They did not platform this movie. They were like, we're putting this in 2,000 screens. Let's go. Again, after advertising it as a horror movie, it opened in third place with $7 million. It came in behind week two of It, which made 60 that weekend. Because remember when It was a giant phenomenon? Oh my God, that movie made so much money. And then number two was American Assassin. Mother barely edged out week two of Home Again, Mark. Oh my god. Why did people not watch it? I, I mean, I think the word of mouth was really bad. That, like, yeah. horror fans were cranky. Jennifer Lawrence fans <laughs> were either cranky or realized it was not for them. And the reviews were really mixed. But it was, like, a weird thing where it's not like the reviews were like, eh, I don't know. They were either like, this is great or this stinks. So it only made $17 million in North America. It made another 24 internationally. It looks like over time with like home video sales and stuff, it has turned a profit, but it certainly was not, it was not a black swan. I would never have called this a success from my cultural recollection. Yeah. This movie. I have some more fun info about it, but I think it'll come up as we talk. Okay. So I think we should get into the romance. That is what we're here to discuss uh, 50 minutes in. So every week, we break down the romantic plotline of the movie into five points to guide the conversation. And before you ask, yes, every point is titled with an exclamation point. As it should be. So point number one, I've called Good Morning, or should I say Good Morning, Jennifer Lawrence, who we come to learn is called Mother, pretty (sighs) much only in the credits, wakes up in bed alone. And looks for Well, I mean, also, she wakes up in bed after the movie starts and, like... It's like an ashen wasteland, and then it all is kind of, like, reborn, and it's the whole house seems to be healing, and you see a bed, and then, like, the sheets, like, rise as she manifests in the bed. Well, yeah, that's all there. She wakes into existence. Yeah, it's pretty clear she is just created at this moment. The movie does not start normal and get weird. It starts really weird, settles into, like, unsettling, and then goes way up again yeah because the first shot is actually just jennifer lawrence's face burning in a fire which i thought was gonna be some like salem witch nonsense so she wakes up and she's looking around eventually she sees him and we establish their pattern of existence at this point which is basically she paints the house he's a writer who's not writing anything and they love each other yeah he's a poet but he has not been able to come up with anything new in a long time And she's, like, trying to help him come up with inspiration. But she spends most of her time, like, painting the walls. She sometimes touches the wall and feels a heartbeat. I'm just gonna say, I would brace the sink before I, like, spent time, like, trying different swatches of paint. Why doesn't she brace the sink? If she complains about it that much, It comes up five times before the sink breaks. I know, it is so apparent that it will break. Because... The first time is, like, her reminding him that they need to do it. The second time is Michelle Pfeiffer sitting on the sink, who, like, is exasperated when she tells her to get off the sink, which is fine. I did not need the, like, four other times after that before (laughs) It comes up so much. It's a great illustration of, like, again, how ham-fisted this movie is. Where, like, it can't even be, like, two times and you got it. You know, some movies would be like one time and you got it locked away and you'll be like, oh, right. No, this is like, you got to hear it. It's like the Richard Nixon thing of like, it's not until you're tired of saying it that people hear it. Yeah, like I kind of figured Michelle Pfeiffer would break it because of the one time she mentioned it to him. 
Yeah, but then Pfeiffer winds up being a little less significant to the movie than you think at that point. Right. But this does bring us to point two, which is the man and woman. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? (sighs) I saw how you reacted earlier. I know what it's like when you're just starting out and you think you have all the time in the world. And, you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. Then you'll be creating something together. This is all just setting. This is such a silly way to talk about this movie. The romance? Well, no, just like walking through in a linear, like, here's what happens, and then here what happens. And it's like, no, you just have this like kind of unpleasant feeling where like Javier Bardem is aloof and sarcastic, and Jennifer Lawrence, like her makeup makes her like she looks like a porcelain doll in these like light white clothes. Like it's all just these weird feelings. This is a very visual movie. It's weird to kind of even just talk about the plot because it's mostly just images. It's all vibes. It is a very vibey movie. Like, yeah, sure. So, like, one day, or rather, one night, Ed Harris knocks on the door. And he's like, oh, no, I'm, I was told this was a bed and breakfast. I think one of the other things that comes up in some of the criticisms of this movie is that the dialogue is very simple, very unsubtle, for starters, but, like, kind of clunky at times. And I think that's deliberate. Like, I think it fits into the sort of, like, mythic quality but as opposed to like a green knight like high fantasy myth it's a like primal ancient text myth it is again not trying to confuse you yeah so like i appreciate how clunky the dialogue is i mean it's also the kind of thing of like it's the funny thing that happens where like when you expect a movie to be good, you take things that you might consider bad in another movie and are like, no, it's important. It's good. <laughs> like, I'm one of the people who's like, it's actually really good that the visual effects in The Irishman aren't quite convincing. <laughs> and like can walk through a whole thematic reason why. But yeah, I think the clunky dialogue in this movie serves its purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's deliberate. We've heard him write less clunky dialogue before. Yeah. Yeah, so Ed Harris shows up is you know, surprised to find out that this poet that he's a fan of is the owner of this house. But it's so late at night, oh, you have to stay here. And he also has a weird wound in his side, like he's had a rib taken out. Yeah, oh my god. But also, he is hacking up a storm and ultimately coughs like an organ into the toilet. (laughs) Like, it looks a little bit like a heart, but not quite. Like, it's just some kind of funky organ. Vague human internal shaped thing. My favorite thing is when it starts blocking up the toilet when Jennifer Lawrence tries to flush it and she like pulls out the plunger and it comes up a bit and then it makes a sound like air going out of a cartoon balloon and then whizzes down the toilet. (laughs) So funny. It's the weirdest sound effect in a movie that has like a very good sound design and it's just like a I was so confused. A movie where I've never been more confused while being so unconfused at the same time. Yeah. Ed Harris is great in this movie. Michelle Pfeiffer, great in it. Like, I kind of like every performance in this movie, but Harris and Pfeiffer in particular do such a good job of just being kind of weird. Kind of weird, and then eventually just straight assholes. Where for so long, it's it's the politeness game. It's what you were talking about at the beginning of just, like, the feeling of... There are people 
in your house and you're not sure you really want them in your house and they're doing just the right amount of like needling on stuff and Pfeiffer in particular keeps being like why don't you have kids you're hot like he must want to have sex with you unless he's oh no don't worry about it you should have better underwear than this and she says like oh I'm known to push things too far hmm now to be fair I don't know that Michelle Pfeiffer should be criticizing anyone's underwear given that lime green leaf bra to each their own William I mean I guess it's so bad so then Ed Harris' man goes for a hike with him. I assume the only thing they talk about is permission to name all of the beasts of the land and the fish of the sea. Look, there's a lot of them. And then when they come back, eventually a woman shows up and Michelle Pfeiffer arrives. And then, as we said, they're like weird and unsettling. And eventually their sons arrive. And this whole time, most importantly... Him is excited to have people there, and Mother is unhappy that he has allowed them to stay there without asking her. Right. Part of it is, like, Javier Bardem keeps talking about how he's excited listening to Ed Harris's stories. Like, he feels like he's getting some inspiration from these people. It's rejuvenating. Yeah. And so things take a turn for the worse when the sons show up. There's also the weird sense every time another person shows up, you're like, how did they get here how did they know to come here like when michelle pfeiffer shows up in the morning she's like oh good and he's like oh yeah this is my wife and you're like you like stumbled on this place there is no road up to this house it's in the middle of nowhere how do these people keep finding it how do they keep showing up no we do find out that ed harris didn't stumble onto it he did find him because he wanted to meet the poet before he died oh that's right and so i assume then he communicated it to michelle pfeiffer who then maybe told the younger brother her favorite sure and that ultimately makes sense but at the time it's happening there is this unsettling quality you feel very much aligned with jennifer lawrence like what another person like how did this happen this is not supposed to happen here yeah i mean you feel aligned with jennifer lawrence about the presence of people the whole time right and part of that is the camera work which is always either like right in her face or right over her shoulder which has this really effective like dual effect of on the one time you always have her perspective or are seeing her as she sees things but it's also really invasive like you you feel like you're on her side but you also feel like you're kind of up in her space yeah you are also taking advantage of mother eventually surprise surprise the older brother kills the younger brother (gasps) and is banished to the wilderness with a mark on his forehead like that is fine i like seeing donald gleason what i really like is after that the spot where it takes place there's all this blood on the floor and Jennifer Lawrence cleans it up, but there's this wound underneath it. Like, the house, like, it's bleeding, and, like, it's kind of, like, squishy to the touch. And she goes underneath, and it's, like, the whole house is, like, bleeding, like, framing this bricked-over cellar entrance. I love a bleeding house. I love, like, a weird wound on an inanimate object. It's great. It's great imagery. Oh, and Mother watches the murder. She's the only one in the room when it happens. So then, of course, Ed Harris has a heart attack. Has to go to the hospital. They eventually throw a weird funeral for the yeah. for the dead son. And him takes Ed Harris to the hospital. Mother asks him to stay. She does not want him to go and leave her alone. Because she is increasingly unhappy with him. Because he's not, he's not listening to her. He's not pretending to consult her about anything. Yeah. And then the funeral happens. This is where we ha- get the first group of people showing up. And they're very annoying until the sink breaks, the house is flooded, and all the people leave. 
Yes, the house is flooded. All the people leave, and there's just a man and a woman left. But it's yeah. him and mother. <gasps> so this is point three, which I call the return of peace, which is a brief <gasps> interlude where they have a huge fight after everyone leaves, which leads to the awkward, like, sort of violence turning to sex between the two of them. Yeah, which is always weird, especially when depicted in a movie where it's the thing of, at first she is very clearly not into it and verbally not into it. And then we see their physical performance transition to a point where it seems like she is. And that's always at least a little unpleasant. Yeah, that is probably my least favorite thing in terms of the violence in this movie. Because that feels the least justified. That just feels like the use of a trope. It feels like it would be possible to have them have sex there with other justification. Like, she could be relieved that they're alone again. Mm -hmm. But importantly, they have sex, and the next morning she wakes up and says, I'm pregnant. She's also made up totally different. Like, she's glowing, she's redder. There's not Mm. the same porcelain quality. Instead, like, she pivots for the rest of the movie into, like, full-on, like, fertility goddess. Yes. Including walking around at times in, like, a very, like, booby white dress and, like, a long braid and all that. It's very hippie, like hippie fertility goddess, specifically. It's a great look. It is. And she is very boobalicious in this movie. And so she's pregnant. They're happy. She gives birth. He writes a book. And this brings us to point four. Yeah. So he, like the day that this is happening, is inspired to write again. Like her being pregnant, it's inspired him with creation and, you know, the juxtaposition of this new life with the death that had happened before. He's like, great, I can write a new poem. I can write a new book. It's going to be a hit. Mm -hmm. And it is. So while she's pregnant, he publishes the book. There's a moment of upset when she realizes that he's already sent it to his publisher and talked to her before he shows it to her. Oh, yeah, I did forget about that. Which is just a good little detail. She's excited to realize he has finished what he's working on. And then she loves it. Right. And then the come down when the phone rings and the publisher's like, this is great. Yeah, when she realizes she isn't the first person to read it. Then a ton of people show up. This is where we get to the, like, phantasmagorical, violent climax of the movie. Yeah, fans are showing up. They are excited about the book. They want to get his autograph. And then they, like, you know, it takes on a religious quality where they're, like, you know, they want some kind of artifact of his. A relic. And so they're, like, grabbing stuff out of the house. They're ultimately tearing it apart eventually it's just like people live there and they form camps and there's a prophet and then the army shows up and there's a war well first it's the cops she calls the cops and it's like these people are in my house they won't leave but then yeah it turns into like an all-out war like there are riots there are executions taking place there's like a fallout shelter sequence at one point it's kind of wild like it is pretty great it's pretty great as like the camera is just like swinging from one to the other The whole time, they're separated, and she's pregnant and trying to protect the baby. Yeah, I think one cool thing is, like, the first half of this movie, when it's just, like, unsettling, there are people in my house, does a really good job of establishing the geography of the house, so -hmm. that you know, like, where all the rooms fit relative to one another. Even though sometimes people don't seem to move through them naturally, like, you'll see someone go off to one area and they'll appear somewhere else, you still know what the geography is. So that you can be as alarmed as Jennifer Lawrence is. And in this segment, like, once the cops have shown up, once everything has devolved, like, none of it makes sense anymore. And so as she's running through it, you also are like, I don't know what is happening right now. Right. Like, it's a whole world now. Like, it's grown. There's more rooms. There's space for, like, 
thousands of people to be living there. And then eventually she, of course, goes into labor in the middle of the chaos. And she and Javier Bardem managed to barricade themselves in his, like, office. Which, oh, so we forgot we to didn't mention. Talk about the, we didn't talk about the crystal. Yeah, the office was the location of the crystal. Which he said, you know, was very important. He found it in the wreckage of his home and it allowed him to rebuild it. One of the first shots of the movie is him putting the crystal in place in his study. And man and woman are interested in the crystal. Javier Bardem, him says, don't touch it. Obviously, they touch it. They break it. And then he boards up the study. Wonder what that could symbolize. (laughs) Yeah, right. Speaking of crystals, just one of the best stories that I read while doing research for this episode, Jennifer Lawrence did this big Vogue profile, and for the profile, the journalist had to interview her at a house she was renting, not her own house, because her house had recently flooded, and she said the reason for it was when she bought the house, the previous occupant like left a bunch of their stuff there, including just like tons of crystals all over the place, and as Jennifer Lawrence tells it, she's like, yeah, and I was going to get rid of all the crystals, and then... Some other people told me, like, no, you can't just throw them out. Like, you need to get the person who placed all the crystals to come and remove them all properly. And she was like, no, I'm just going to get rid of all the crystals. And then, like, two days later, her house flooded. And she's like, clearly some mystical nonsense is going on. I'd probably feel the same way. And I just love that that happened to her after doing this movie. That is really funny. I just, I feel like... coincidence. This movie warned her about a lot of things. Be careful with crystals. Don't date the person who's 21 years older than you, who is a creative and might be kind of aloof and weird. Yeah, she could have taken some messages. It's not a subtle movie. No. Come on. Also, I don't understand why she dates him because we're about to talk about like the end of the movie. Like, this was a very stressful shoot for Jennifer Lawrence. You know, she has to go through all this intense stuff. They rehearsed for three months before shooting, which is unheard of for a movie. They rehearse for three months, and then while shooting it, she has to do all this intense emotion. She's, like, bloodied and beaten during it. Apparently, during the final sequence, like, after her baby has been killed and stuff like that, all the screaming she had to do, she ruptured her diaphragm. Oh my god. Yeah. How did she end up with him? I don't understand it. And then, like, there are other scenes where she's just, like, having to get, like, really worked up in this, like, anguished state. And they're, like, barely taking breaks between shots. Ultimately, some crew members set up a, like, chill-out tent for her that was entirely themed around the Kardashians. They're like, Jen needs to have some time to just detox from this movie. She likes reality TV. They set up a tent that was decorated with pictures of the Kardashians and just had episodes playing on a constant loop. That's so nice. Yeah. That sounds so perfect. Right, but it's like, I, I genuinely would love an explanation of, like, and then why do you date this man? Yeah. And I do think that was probably part of the response to this movie is, like, everyone was trying to figure that out and was not necessarily focused on the movie. Will, if I'm ever in a stressful situation, will you build a tent with cutouts of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills in New York and just have episodes on a loop? Yeah, I could do that. That feels very calming to me. So, (laughs) after her baby is born, she refuses to hand the baby over to him because she's lost all faith in him. In part because, like, they've barricaded themselves in the study, and she keeps asking him to tell the people to leave. And he keeps being like, no, I can't tell them to leave. Like, they're a part of this. And, like, it is just the thing of, like, he genuinely just want wanting them there. 
Right, he does. And, like, he's excited when there's food outside, like a basket, like an offering has been given. And she's like, I guess it's good that we have food. But also, like, she and you, the audience, have so completely lost any faith in him. Like, it feels like a miracle when the kid is born. Which feels trite, like, yeah, it's like an obviously religious movie talking about miracles. But, like, by that point, I had, like, given up all hope on this thing actually going down. Except that I knew they were going to eat a baby at some point. Yeah. Like, it feels like it. she should not have been able to pull it off. No, it's a lot. <laughs> and so she refuses to give him the baby. And also just, like, she's like, we're staying in here until those people go. Mm-hmm. But, uh, fortunately, she falls asleep. And this is where... He then takes the baby outside to show it to them. And when she wakes up, the baby is gone. She runs outside and yells at him, like, how dare you? Where is my son? And you can see it, like, being... Basically, the baby is crowd surfing. Yeah. The baby is being crowd surfed, just passed through. And then it's horrifying. She's chasing after the baby. And eventually, you don't see the baby, but you hear just a crack. The baby has been killed. They rip it apart. The people are eating the baby. This is all very subtle. Yes. Very easy to not understand. And then when she yells at them, they start beating her up. And this, to me, is far and away the most unpleasant part. It's like, I mean, it's also as they're tearing at her clothes and just, you know, I mean, to me also in this period, like, it is impossible sort of not to think about sort of all the culture of Jennifer Lawrence's naked body and how this is coming out not long after the iCloud hack when, like, naked pictures of her had been stolen and spread on the internet. And... It's really bad. She's being beat up. Javier Bardem comes in to rescue her. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. They just want to see him. They just want to touch him. And then they... It's horrible. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We can't. We can't let him die for nothing. We can't. Maybe what... Maybe what happened could change everything. Everyone. What are you talking about? We... You know, we have to find a way to forgive them. We butchered our son. I know. I know. You're insane. Listen to me. You're insane. Listen to me. I'm so sorry. They are truly sorry. Please, have faith in me. Please, please, we need to forgive them. We need to forgive them. Please, please. But even then, he's like, we have to forgive them. We, we can't let him die for nothing. It would change everything if we forgave them. And it's like, again, oh, Darren Aronofsky, I see what you're doing here. Yeah. But you're also like, dude, shut up. They ate the baby. Right. Yeah, what she says is they butchered our son. They butchered our son. She runs away. And this is where... She then burns down the house. Good for her. Cool. Good. Kills all the people inside, except for him, who is not impacted by the fire. And when she asks who he is, he just says, I am I. And I said, "Ah." (laughs) that one was a little on the nose for me. It's a palindrome. No, No, it's not. not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yep. And so then he... Reaches inside her chest, rips out her heart, and pulls a crystal out of it. Yep. Um, have you seen the poster for this movie lately? No. Isn't it just because, her face? Uh, no, that is sort of the like boring poster. The original poster is Jennifer Lawrence having ripped out her heart, holding it out to the audience. That's a great poster. It's a really good poster. That's also the first thing, 
like piece of information they shared about the movie, they kept being like, mysterious Darren Aronofsky movie starring Jennifer Lawrence. And everyone was like, all right, sure. And then this poster came out and everyone was like, what is happening? But yeah, so he takes a crystal and this brings us to point five, which is very quick. The house rebuilds just like at the beginning. And we see a new mother. Who again is even younger than Jennifer Lawrence. Right. And the cycle starts all over again. All right, Will. <laughs> so do you find the romance of this movie believable? Um, I think yes. <laughs> it's really hard to judge this one. Right. Because you have like, there is like the divine quality to it. But there is also the like, the read of this movie that it is about like being a a creator, being an artist and what it is to be in a like exhausting relationship with an artist. There's a point in it where Jennifer Lawrence is like, I'm, I'm going to have our baby. Like, isn't that enough for you? Why do you need all these people? And Javier Bardem is like, no, I like need more. That's why I have to create because what exists is not enough for me. I have to create something else. And you can put that into the religious allegory where it's, you know, the earth is not enough. It needs to be populated. There need to be people for God. But there's also the thing of like, this movie could be about dating someone like, I don't know, Darren Aronofsky. And he's like focused on making these movies and not paying a lot of attention. And you're like, I was the female star of The Mummy. Why won't you pay any attention to me? And you're just struggling with all of that. And so I think that's a part of it too. And we have to talk about how believable this romance is. Yeah. It is weird because he literally does create her. But overall, I'd say it's fairly believable. It's a bad relationship. He does not listen to her. And she does eventually lose her cool and burn the house down because he doesn't listen. Yeah. So what are you feeling? Like a seven? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Seven out of ten for believability? All right. Cool. Do you think mother or him is dateable? No. Nope. Not really looking to date God or a obsessive artist. Right. Either one. And then Mother is... It's the kind of thing of, like, you wonder, like, if Mother were in a relationship with somebody who were not Javier Bardem, she might be pretty great. Yeah. But it's hard to say. We mostly see her unraveling because of a terrible relationship. Yeah. Well, we know they won't stay together. Or I guess they will, depending on if you consider New Mother to be a continuation of the same character. New Mother is at least a continuation of the same idea. So yeah, I think they'll be together forever. Yeah. Um. Oh, this is going to be hard. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? I thought about this constantly during the movie and never came up with a good answer. I got nothing. Because the point of this movie is every single person is terrible. Yeah. Is the house alive? I mean, the house is, I guess, Earth. It has a heartbeat. Yeah. Maybe younger brother. Okay. He doesn't really do anything wrong. I'm going to date the house. Okay. Maybe sometimes it could be like a monster house and have a mouth. Yeah. And I could kiss it. All younger brother does is have his, the will changed where it enters into a trust where him and his brother have to execute the will and then his older brother murders him. Yeah, that seems like a, that seems like a fine answer. So do you think there should be a stage musical version of mother? (gasps) I need to know your answer. No. (laughs) I think too much of it is just supposed to be, like, sensory overload and graphic imagery that would be hard to create on stage. It's worth noting that this movie does not have a score. Yeah, there's also no score, so it's like, music is so unapart of this. 
in comparison to normal movies. The only music that's in it is when the credits roll and End of the World starts playing. Yeah. But the late great composer Johan Johansson wrote a full 90-minute score to this movie. Oh. And they wrote the score, they synced it up with the movie, and he and Aronofsky watched the movie, and they decided together, you know what, the movie's better off without this score. I think it's better off without the score, though. I think you're right. That score has never been released, and Johan Johansson died unexpectedly, and there's a finite number of Johansson scores, and we need this one released into the world. Yeah, I would like to hear it. Also, in September 2017, during the window between the festival run and the movie's premiere, when Aronofsky threw up his hands and said, I'm explaining the whole movie, Mm -hmm. he did a Reddit AMA, and in it, he said he and Johan Johansson were working on using the score as a baseline to create a mother (gasps) opera. Okay, I can see it in opera form. I think it's a great story for opera. Yeah. Musical, no. Opera, yes. I think that's about right. I can't wait to see how they break the sink on stage. I mean, I doubt it'll happen. It's been five years. It feels like there should have been movement. All right. I think that is it for Mother. (gasps) Next week, we are going to wrap up our Halloween season with a coverage of the 70s horror classic Burnt Offerings. I know nothing about this movie. It's a spooky house movie like this. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the movie. Uh, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Mother? I feel like the best dating advice I got from this movie was don't date Darren Aronofsky, but it feels like Jennifer Lawrence didn't pay attention. I think you are correct. My dating advice is uh, only invite people over that you have permission from your living partner to invite. That is very good advice. Otherwise, your child will be murdered and eaten. I don't know about that. (laughs) Seems the only logical conclusion from this movie. But mostly, just have permission before you invite people to spend the night. Yeah, good rule. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. We are the pirates who don't do anything. We just stay home and lie around. And if you ask us to do anything, we'll just tell you. We don't do anything. Well, I've never been to Greenland, and I've never been to Denver, and I've never buried treasure in Bangkok.